the Scholars in Iron podcast. One of the key demands of the labor sports movement in the earlier period was more access for gyms and playing fields for working class people. Good morning and welcome to the Scholars in Iron podcast. I'm your host, Joe, coming to you from outside the nation's capital, right here in the DMV. The objective of Scholars in Iron is very straightforward. It's to associate strength training with intellectual endeavors. On the show, we'll examine the connection between capitalism and CrossFit, philosophy and powerlifting, all to raise some hell and even a few questions. By the end of each episode, we'll get one rep closer to living the phrase, civilize the mind, but make savage the body. Now come on, let's lift. What does the weekend, overtime pay, the 40-hour work week, and popular access to sports participation all have in common? They were accomplished by unions and the socialists who led them. Yet for the better half of the 20th century and well into this one, leftists are less associated with sports than they are with books. In a Guardian article from last July, Sam Wolfson looked at the mutation of this stereotype in its modern form, low testosterone levels politically corresponding to progressive lines of thinking. Now, it goes without saying this is laughably false, but it did leave me wondering, why is it that in our cultural imagination, socialists and leftists are seen as a bunch of cultured wimps, while the right are strong, excelling at sports and exercise? I spoke to James Robinson, PhD candidate in history in Northeastern University in Boston, who specializes in sports in the working class, to get a better idea of the history and politics of this unspoken great divide. If you want to start at the beginning, you know, corporate America, conservative groups certainly use sports. Company sports were a big thing in the early 1900s, where a company would basically get a, a team together to provide entertainment for its workforce, and build identification with the company. By the late 20s through 30s, unions, and especially radical unionists, took that notion and flipped it on its head of building uh, working-class sporting clubs committed to anti-racism and anti-fascism. There's a few different forms they use. Some of it was explicitly communist or socialist sporting clubs. The labor sports union in the 20s through mid-30s was the, an example of that. That was a communist group. Their most successful branch was in soccer leagues. There was also plenty of ethnic sports clubs, so particularly Jewish and Finnish immigrant clubs that sort of took a tradition from Europe and brought it to the United States. In the 30s, they sort of moved more into building mass organizations. So what you saw by the late 30s is these mass labor sports. So sports affiliated with particular unions. If we jump across the ocean for a second and move to Europe, you had a mass worker sport movement. You can translate it a few different ways. Roughly speaking, we'll just call it worker sport. 
And it's the same thing. It's a mass movement of working class people. Similar to how early development of infrastructure in New York City to parks and beaches were purposely designed with the wealthy in mind, athletic organizations in this period were also reserved for the more financially prosperous in society, often sidelining working class participation. It's important to remember that amateur sports were dominated by middle class people up until the 20s. And so oftentimes you'd actually exclude certain professions from amateur clubs. So, you know, if you were a factory worker, you were going to have a hard time getting access to cheap or free recreation, especially through sports. So building these working class clubs enabled access for your poor of society. The International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which was a big union, strongest in New York. Their leadership were all socialists, and they had ongoing contacts with the worker sport movement. And eventually, in the Great Depression, as the International Ladies Garment Workers Union is working to build on the conditions and improve life. So some of them attend the Vienna Olympics, and the leadership of the union particularly David Dubensky, who is the president of the ILGWU. He goes to the the Vienna Olympics, and he's really impressed and really orders a construction of a sporting program in that union. So later on, the ILGWU is instrumental in starting the CIO, which was Congress of Industrial Unions, most famously, the UAW comes of the CIO, along with some others, the steel workers, the electrical workers, the longshoremen of the West Coast. So these are these unions are all uh, unions that change the lives of millions of people, and they have a lot of socialists and communists involved in them. It's hard to think of unions today playing an oversized role in the lives of their members as they had back then. What they offered beyond better pay and working conditions was a sense of leisure that wasn't about grabbing a beer after work, but making sports and athleticism lifetime activities. If you are only fighting for wages and benefits and winning shorter hours, what do working class people do with their time off? Well, they can either spend it in bars, they can go to the movies, they can go to the company sports. They'll either spend the time in not super constructive ways, or they'll spend it in commercial endeavors. So the the idea was the union would provide recreation. And if we're thinking about how people had fun in the 30s, 20s, 40s, etc., a lot of that was sports. So if you're just scurrying around, you know, you'd have a little baseball game or you'd start boxing or you'd have a basketball game or whatever. The CIO unions really put emphasis on building recreational programs with the number one most popular recreational programs being sports. This is a direct result of these socialists and communists having this this desire to create uh, anti-racist, anti-fascist, working-class counterculture in which they build their own institutions. 
In powerlifting training, a developmental approach, former Westside powerlifter and record holder Matt Wenning writes that with the demise of communism in Eastern Europe, state-funded programs for weightlifting and sports significantly declined. And I quote, Although communism has distinct downfalls, for training and long-term development of athletes, it was an optimal system because they could control more aspects of people's lives outside of the gym. Most coaches realize that to excel in long-term developmental sport, it is crucial to have a total dedication to the task, something that we have struggled with in the West. The Soviet Union has what's called physical culture. So it's, it's this mass mobilization of people into sports programs. Uh, similar today would be the Cuban baseball program. So Cuba produces a lot of great baseball players, and they largely do that from by identifying people pretty early on. So, you know, the, with the thinking about the Russians, they yeah they had pretty developed sports programs. You know, and you could say like yeah they're also totalitarian sports programs like you're pretty highly pressured to like you didn't really have much of a choice in these things but so what happens in the cold war is the soviet union moves away from these the worker sport and puts its energy into the international competitions so whatever soccer federations or Olympic federations and games, they are, communist countries are putting their energy into dominating and scoring propaganda wins. So why did sports and athleticism among the left decline? How does it end? Uh, well, there's two things that go on. One is the Red Scare. So a lot of these institutions are actually killed by the Red Scare. So some unions are totally destroyed by the Red Scare. Some unions expel all their radicals. The other part of it is what's called the bowling alone phenomenon, where there's hyper-individualism and suburbanization and television. It kills amateur leagues in general, but labor sports aren't a special target for these trends. So by the 60s, this movement has largely petered out. And that's around the time you see the, the rise of youth subcultures, which turned away from working class culture, more embraced sort of the youth culture. So based around music and dropout culture and college campuses, as opposed to like work sites or neighborhoods. So the old left, socialist, communist, anarchists, as opposed to the new left of you know, the hippies and yippies, and they really did embrace sports. Yeah, they totally have, like, separated themselves uh, from sports. From the 60s on, most of the social justice aspects of sports is at the elite professional level. So, like, Muhammad Ali, for instance. Uh, we're not talking, like, common people. Sports relationships also kind of change because of TV. So it becomes more of a consumption thing rather than something you participate in as an adult. Most people who play sports, it ends after high school. Like you don't really continue doing it. Lastly, James and I spoke about competition and why it seems to have become a four-letter word among the left. I think it comes back to that competition is fun. Like as if you do it in certain contexts, it doesn't have to be bourgeois or whatever. It's like, well... 
why are millions of people interested in sports, even just as fans, if not participants? Like, because it's fun and it it feels good. Um, so I think like it's a real loss by left wing people to not build those sorts of institutions. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's just the company I keep, but I have seen like more, especially like women getting into like powerlifting. Damn straight, James. That's all we have for today, guys. I just want to thank James Robinson for a fascinating look into sports in the working class. Music by Robert Slump. For Scholars and Iron, this is Joe signing off.